Hello, church. Welcome to Church Online. We are so glad that you have chosen to spend this time together with us. And if you have been watching over these last several weeks, been a regular attender to this online gathering, you'll notice that I've been the one welcoming you each week. And I hope that this has been helpful, especially to those of you that are new to the church to get to know me as a pastor here but I will not be greeting you each week. Uh, you will soon get to meet other of our elders, some of our deacons and other church leaders as we start to make our preparations to uh, be in person again together. Hopefully in the next few months, we'll be able to do that. We want you to be able to meet them, get to know them so that when we are in the same place, we recognize one another and you can begin to know a little bit more intimately those that are investing in your faith, in your hope, and in your love. All right, so as we get ready to enter into this gathering, I do want us to pause. This is for my benefit as well as to your benefit that we stop moving around and we allow ourselves to get settled in. This is a moment for us to take a deep breath, and I literally want us to do that. This is not just me speaking some sort of spiritual language. It's like, let's take a deep breath together. Man, let's just let that out. You may even want to take another and just try to slow yourself down. So if you're moving about, please sit still or stand still just for a moment. We need to recenter ourselves. Our scattered senses are probably all over the place, but the presence of the living God is with us. I was reflecting this week on the African sisters that we met in our teaching last Sunday, uh, Perpetua and Felicity, and it led me to John chapter 16, verse 33. So I'd love for you to say this short prayer that's been adapted from John chapter 16, Verse 33, out loud with me, it is on the screen for you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. He told us many things so that in him we may have peace. In this world, we will have trouble. But we take heart. He overcame the world. And we celebrate that we are in Jesus Christ, our Lord, today. Amen. Wow, this, this is true. I hope that we can begin to experience the truth of this more and more throughout the week. So if you're new to our church, we do welcome you. We are so thankful to have this opportunity to talk about Jesus together. But at any point in time during this gathering, you need prayer. You can go to the app and click on the prayer tab and, and share that request with us. Or you can email us at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. And we want to be able to join with you in those requests. And everyone is invited after the gathering is over to join us in a Zoom lingering time. The link is in the description on whatever video platform you're watching this service. It has become a great opportunity for us to get to know one another, talk about the teaching, ask questions, and then participate in the Lord's table together. So we do that 10 minutes after the benediction. And then again, each night on each Sunday night at 7.30 p.m. All right. So as we move forward in our worship, let's take some time to focus on generosity together. We know that the character of our Father in heaven is that of a generous God. He is generous towards us, and we know that he wants us to be generous towards one another. He has set an example of that. So right now, would you join me in saying out loud this prayer of generosity? 
Father in heaven, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits, to show what you are like to all of the world. Amen. I would like to encourage you right now to take time to give. It is a joy for us to be able to do this together, and it is allowing us to do some exciting things with one another in our church family. And so you can do that right now through the app, or you can give online at gcbdowntown.com slash giving. And we pray that today in our time together, that we would just grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here with us today. Today, we're starting our seven-week series where we will look at the violence we see in the Bible and the violence we have seen in church history. Recently, a violent mob stormed the capital of the United States and while doing so, prayed in Jesus' name. Through this series, we hope to equip you to read the Bible with clarity, see how God is not violent, and how we are to act non-violently. And if we, as a gallery church family, remain focused, we will distance ourselves from the church's violent testimony and become ambassadors of another way of living. I love the one God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. George MacDonald, 19th century Scottish novelist and theologian. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you, Jesus? Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him, softly and tenderly I wait for him. The Prophet Isaiah It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews 
God is love. John the Beloved On July 8, 1741, at the beginning of the Great Awakening, a Puritan classic, a revivalist text, was preached for the first time. Since this sermon has become one, if not the most famous, well-known sermon ever preached. It, was, it, is, it has been studied in both secular and Protestant universities, and it has even been studied as a, quote, literary work, as an example of descriptive writing. Do you even know which sermon that I'm referring to? Some of you probably said it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, written and spoken by Jonathan Edwards. Let me start our teaching out today with an excerpt from this most descriptive sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some lonesome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Beautiful, isn't it? God depicted as the kid in the backyard that burned toys with a magnifying glass in the Toy Story movies. God depicted as the hateful one dangling us over a fire. Since we live here in Baltimore, I would even say that Edgar Allan Poe would be impressed with the imagery that Edwards used in just that little excerpt. But let me just say this, church, this bothers me deeply. It bothers me that, I, that this didn't bother me deeply 20 years ago. This bothers me deeply today. Edwards wants us to see God as viewing sinners like you and me as loathsome spiders and venomous snakes. Most of us don't like spiders or snakes, especially when they surprise us and when they are not found in the aquarium tank that we were holding them in. But here's my startling and starting point question that I want to pose to us today that we will answer some today and we'll answer some more next week. Is this true? Is it true that God is so dreadfully provoked to wrath by our sin that he looks upon us as abominable snakes and loathsome spiders? Does God really abhor sinners? Does he view us as worthy of nothing else than to be cast into hellfire? Let me read just a little bit more from this great descriptive sermon. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, boundless duration before you. You will absolutely despair forever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, and any rest at all. Welcome to God's torture chamber. 
the divine perfection of pain and misery, according to Jonathan Edwards. But here, let me be honest. We can, and I know many of you have, rummage through the Bible to find verses that create a monstrous deity. But let me get back to the point of today. Is this true? Is God actually merciless and vengeful? Many pastors, evangelists, and teachers believe this thinking is being faithful to what the Bible teaches. And let me say this again. Let me ask my question. Is it Is this type of sermon, type of thinking, faithful to what the Bible really teaches? History tells us that the audience that listened to Jonathan Edwards was pretty shook up by the sermon. I would imagine so. Some even writhed on the floor begging God for mercy. Jonathan believed that once the congregation was sufficiently traumatized. Jesus could now save them from this enraged God who was on the verge of torturing them forever. So the point of this sermon, part one of this week and then part two next week, so this is one sermon over two Sundays, is to answer the question, is this true? And once we answer this question, I think we can then move forward and talk for five weeks about other places of violence in the Bible. But we must first answer the question, is this true? All right, before we move on, I need to get something off my chest. I think it's really important that I clarify two things right now. Number one is I don't think that one sermon should be how we represent all of Jonathan Edwards' preaching and ministry. Um, He wasn't always terrorizing his congregation, and it probably isn't fair that we judge him solely on one sermon, and that one sermon being sinners in the hands of an angry God. But I do need to clarify, he did preach it. He did actually share this teaching. All right, so the second thing is, is that I'm thankful that I'm not being measured by one of my sermons. If you had a manuscript of a sermon that I had preached 20 to 25 years ago, you may not trust me as a spiritual father, as a pastor, or one that you would find worthy of imitation. So I am saying I want to extend grace to Jonathan Edwards, much like I want people to extend grace to me as a teacher and as a communicator. I don't think it's fair to measure a pastor by one sermon. But, okay, got that off my chest. So here, to the point of today. Does God hold us like loathsome insects over a fire? Is this true? See, I grew up in the gospel track, gospel t-shirt generation that puts together words and pictures that seem to reinforce the belief that God hates us and he's planned to torture us for eternity unless we pray a magic prayer. So usually on the front of a shirt, it would say one thing. On the back of the shirt, it would say something else. Or in a track, you'd have multiple pages with words and pictures. And at the very end, on one side, the track would end with a prayer that would release us from the forever torture chamber. Um, But on the other side, it looked like God was hurling us off of Mount Doom into some kind of pit of fire. And that's how the track would present itself. So let me contrast the tracks that I grew up with and the sermon from Edwards with another sermon of a revivalist seeking to awaken a people. 
This is from the revivalist or prophet Jeremiah when in Jeremiah 31, 20 said this, Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, speaking on behalf of God here, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Now remember that name is Ephraim. Every time he says it, Ephraim, every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. There's nothing in here about loathsome spiders or snakes. No mention of that in this sermon. In Jeremiah's sermon, we find a beautiful moment of poetry channeling the heart of God to his beloved Ephraim. So who's Ephraim? Ephraim is Israel in the 7th century BC. More significantly, I think it's really important that we understand what Israel is like in the 7th century. So Ephraim is Israel in its worst spiritual condition and lowest moral state. They are moving away from God like the tide moves back on the seashore. They are gradually moving away from God, but consistently falling back from him. Let me give you the resume of Israel in this time period as best we can shape it from what we know through the Bible and through history. Ephraim, Israel, is idolatrous. They're adulterous, backsliding, backsliding, backslidden. They are covenant breaking, sinful. That's just a short example of some of the words that would read out on Ephraim's resume. But Ephraim is still the child of God. Jeremiah reveals God's unconditional love for his prodigal son, the wayward Ephraim. So if it was the modern, if it was Jesus's parable, the prodigal son, the son that returns has a name and that name would have been Ephraim. Seven centuries before the full, the full revelation of God that would come in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jeremiah's poetic picture captures the heart of God towards the sinner Ephraim. So now let me ask the question again. Is this true? Is this sermon the heart of God towards me? Is this the heart of God towards you? This is good news that God is love. At our worst and at our most sinful, God's attitude towards us remains one of unwavering love. God is not menacing or faceless. Jesus Christ is the face of the Father. Like we are getting in this sermon, this picture of great love towards us. And we're finding now, as I start to mention Jesus in this teaching, you're going to now see a pattern of what we're going to, it's going to look like for us to talk about God in these next two sermons. The apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Remember, I love that. I think it's important. Sometimes we just need to look at one another and just start our meeting off with remember, whether that's our gathering or growth community or a hub. Maybe the first thing that we should say to one another this week is remember, because we have a forgetting problem. If you've been around a church long enough to know, I've talked about that for a long time. Over 200 times in the Bible, it tells us to remember or not to forget. So we have a serious forgetting problem. So Paul telling the early church, remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus 
for you. It started when God said, let light up the darkness, but our lives filled up with light, excuse me, and our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ. All bright and beautiful. I love that. Jesus is the one that shows us the face, the countenance, the disposition, and the attitude of our Father in heaven, of God himself. And I love how John put it in his first, in his letter to the early church. No one has ever seen God, not so much a glimpse, this one-of-a-kind God expression. Notice that's capitalized, that's referring to Jesus, who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. I love that. So let me argue with John just for a minute, because I know some of you are wired to do that. So I just want to join you in arguing with John just for a moment, because he just said that no one has ever seen God. His words were no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. So let me argue that. What about Abraham? He saw God and shared a meal with him under the oaks of Mamre in the Old Testament. What about Jacob? He saw God at the top of a ladder as angels were ascending and descending at Bethel. What about Moses? He met God face to face. What about the 70 elders of Israel that saw God on top of Mount Sinai? So John, what about Isaiah? He saw God in the year of King, the year that King Uzziah died and the train of the robe filled the temple. This was the image that Isaiah saw, John. What about Ezekiel, John? He saw visions of God by the river Shabar in Babylon. With this text, John, I argue with you. What are you saying? How do you respond to me saying this to you from the Old Testament? This is how I would imagine John replying to me or to you in this particular moment. You don't have to teach me the Bible. I could hear John saying that in a very loving but kind way. You don't have to teach me the Bible. I know the stories from Genesis to Malachi, but no matter the visions, the dreams, the revelations, the epiphanies, the theophanies, the Christophanies, people had it in times past. They pale in significance when compared to the full revelation of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I can see John just sitting down and saying, pass the bread. Let me share a little bit more with you about what the writer of Hebrews actually had to say about this in Hebrews chapter one. Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. Recently, he spoke to us directly through his son, by his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to him, the son, in the end. The son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. Did you hear that? The son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. Man, that is powerful. So here, you need to hear this. Let me summarize John. Let me summarize the writer of Hebrews. Let me understand, summarize what it was that they believed to be true. God is and has always been like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We're going to need to remember that as we go through these next six weeks, as we deal with some passages in scripture that may try to convince us otherwise. We have not always known this, but I am hoping that through this teaching, you will forever be different, that this will be a gift to you to set you free to see that God is like Jesus. God is exactly how Jesus depicted him. 
in his most famous parable about a father and two sons, this father who runs to receive and embrace and restore a prodigal son. This is why I felt like we needed to do this series. I understand that we can use the Bible as a resource to paint a monstrous God. We can look at other pastors' sermons. And this series, I believe, is going to prove, if we're patient, that any image that you and I have, any belief that you and I have, that does not line up with Jesus is wrong, period, wrong. People have never seen God until they have seen Jesus Christ. According to Paul, to the early church in Colossae, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says this about Jesus and about how perfect Jesus is, infallible Jesus is, and how inerrantly Jesus is the word of God. Christ is the visible, the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. John even went on in his gospel later on to say in chapter 14, anyone, Jesus responding to his disciples says this, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? I love that. Jesus is like, look, you see me, you've seen my dad. So why do you ask me to show him to you? We must reject. And here's the thing, church, in light of everything that we've seen since January 6th and even everything we've seen in our lifetime in regards to the church and truth and violence and the image of God, the character of God being called into question on so many situations, we must reject any monstrous portrait of God because Jesus did not reveal this to us about God. It is not what Jesus revealed. But many of us struggle with the imagery of God being angry, God being violent, and God being vindictive. And if we're honest, that impacts our prayer life. It impacts what we meditate on when we're at home by ourselves, when we're thinking about our lives. That thought of God being angry and violent and vindictive is causing us struggle and is impeding our growth as a church and as a family. This distorted image of God comes from many sources. Like I, we can't just blame Edwards. We can't just blame authors and books and sermons and evangelists, we will have to deal with the Bible and we will deal with that during this series. We will have to address some very difficult passages, but you and I need to understand that the Old Testament is not one voice, but it is many voices. And we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. We read it like as if we would read any other piece of literature, but the Old Testament is often a debate with both sides getting a chance to make its case. Let me just give you a simple example. Proverbs and Job. Proverbs says, fear God and do what is right. Good things will happen to you. And there is truth in this proverb. But Job looks at Proverbs, in my opinion, I, I not saying that he does, but if he was here, he would look at Proverbs and says, that's not always the whole story. That's the tone of Job. He proves his point through the telling of his tragic tale, showing how bad things can happen to good people. Proverbs, you do what's right, you're going to be blessed. Job, ah, I did that and bad things happened to me. So you find in the Old Testament that both sides make a case for how you and I are processing the world in which we live in. Let me tell you in simple terms, 
And we will be in reinforcing this over this series of how I have learned to walk through what I call the library of books known as the library, the, the Bible. So the Bible is not a book. It is a library that contains 66 books that we use to help us understand God. So here's the thing I need you to understand about the Bible, and it's going to be on the screen for you. The Bible doesn't stand above the story it tells, but is fully ingrained in it. And what I mean by that is, is that the Father, Son, and Spirit make up the Trinity, and the Bible is fully ingrained at teaching the world that. The Bible isn't a part of the Trinity. The Bible is the journey of people or the recorded journey of people listening to God and making sense of it and trying to get clarity. The Bible is on a quest to discover who the word of God is. The Bible does include the word of God because it is pointing us towards the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. We find in the Old Testament that it is a progression of revelation. We cannot make Proverbs and Job Job, always agree perfectly, just like you can't read Moses's writings and Hosea and make them agree perfectly. And when we do that, we harm one another when we try to make them agree. There are plenty of angry God texts in the Old Testament, and we will get to them. But we also find Jeremiah's tender-hearted father longing for sinful Ephraim in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament paints a picture of God being both quick to anger and slow to anger. That's found in the Old Testament. So here, how do we settle this in the Old Testament? It is my opinion that Jesus settles all disputes when you and I come across something in the Old Testament that seems to conflict, that doesn't mesh, or that just seems way unbelievable any dispute that you and I have, we have to settle it in Jesus Christ. And here's one of the reasons why I believe that we struggle to understand who God is when we read the Bible. Metaphor. In this series, we're going to talk a lot about metaphors. A lot. I'm not joking. A lot. We cannot talk about God without using metaphors. The Old Testament did it. The New Testament did it. We do it. But the harm comes when we literalize a metaphor. We can do this. And when we do this, we create an idol or we create some kind of formulated error. For example, God is not a man. God is not a rock. God is not a tower. God is not a fortress, not a hen, not a husband, not a mother, not a warrior, not a farmer, not a king. I think you get my point. All of these metaphors are used throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and even the New to talk about God. And we cannot use these metaphors, um, excuse me, but we can use these metaphors, but we cannot literalize them. Here's another metaphor used in the Bible, wrath of God. What does that mean? The wrath of God is a biblical metaphor that we use to describe the very real consequences we suffer from trying to go through life against the grain of love. I love what Brad Jersick says. The wrath of God is understood as a divine consent to our own self-destructive defiance. So here, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. 
When we sin against the two great commandments to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, we suffer the inevitable consequences of acting against love. We suffer because we're acting against those commands. We call this the wrath of God. That's what the Bible calls that, the wrath of God. But this does not mean that God actually loses his temper. God no more loses his temper than he literally goes to sleep. Even though the Bible in Psalm 78, 65 says the Lord awoke from his sleep. We must get this point if we are going to understand anything throughout this series. I love the way Brian Zod shares this. He says, literizing a divine metaphor always leads to error. So hopefully in this series, as we address metaphors, we will find out why we believe things in error. We seem okay with understanding that God is literally not a rock and that God is literally not a hen. But when it comes to the metaphors in the Old Testament about divine anger, the wrath of God, we fall victim to broken thinking. I wonder why that is. I've included in our growth community notes, Psalms chapter seven, as a way to experience this through the Old Testament this week in our growth communities where we can read it and process it. Because in this chapter at the beginning, it appears that God is wetting his sword with vengeance. But as you continue through the Psalm, you'll begin to see that there's a metaphor in there explaining the reciprocal consequences of seeking to harm others, sinners falling into their own trap. But too often we think that God is vengeful and angry and that he can't wait to pull out his sword. So let me stop for a moment for a point of clarification. So if you have dozed off or you've gotten up and you're running around doing something else, it is very important in this moment in the teaching that you get back to a seat and you engage with me. So here, lean in. Come here. Come here. I want to I need to make sure that we understand this. God's wrath is a biblical, as a biblical metaphor, does not make the consequences of sin any less real or painful. It's on the screen for you. I want you to look at those words and I want you to understand this. What I'm saying to you today does not make the consequences of sin less real or less painful. Let me actually say this in another way. The revelation that God is like Jesus does not exempt us from the consequences of going against the love of God. When we live against the love of God, when we go against the flow of God's love, we suffer. We've experienced that, haven't we? So many times in our relationships, even with pastor to people in some of our personal interactions, some of you, because we have said or done the wrong thing that has gone against love, we have suffered for it. Our city is suffering because people are going against the flow of God's love. Our nation is suffering because people are going against the flow of God's love. This is what the Bible refers to as the wrath of God. This does not mean that God hates you or even worse than hates you. I love the way that John summarized all of his years of walking with Jesus and seeing Jesus in three simple words. God is love. We must be honest with ourselves. When you and I find ourselves in the hands of God, 
we can no longer live in the disguise of our lies. You need to hear that. Let those words on the screen meditate, marinate into your soul just for a minute. When we are in the hands of God, we can no longer live in the disguise of our lives. In his hands, we have to face ourselves. And if we're honest, this is terrifying. It is terrifying to think that we're in the hands of a pure and and powerful and all-knowing God and we realize that we're in his hands. There is terror involved in that. And that's why in this story of the prodigal son, there's so many layers to this because as he returned home, his father ran to him and this boy, I'm sure, was afraid. And then he said to his dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He was in the arms of his dad at this time and he's saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He was rebellious. He had said hateful things to him and now he was afraid what his father might say and do. But he, this prodigal son, this Ephraim character, found out that there is no better place to be than in the arms of his father. He fell into the arms of his father in fear and realized that in those arms, in those hands, he found forgiveness and healing and restoration. Just because the son felt fear doesn't mean that the father was the one that caused it. Church, you need to hear that. Just because we might have fear doesn't mean that God is up there trying to make us live in fear. But when we come running back to him because we realize who he is and and how much love he has and forgiveness is there, there is going to be a sense of terror in us. But that does not mean that God has caused it. When we fall into the arms of the living God, we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. I I strongly disagree with Jonathan Edwards' sermon title. I strongly disagree with the descriptive language to describe God. When we fall into the arms of the living God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, as displayed in Christ's actions, as taught in Jesus's words, as displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus's life, we are sinners in the arms of a loving God. There are monstrous things that we will be addressing in the weeks to come. So today's a good start, but we're going to be dealing with the war, the violence, the greed, the exploitation, the oppression, the racism, the genocide, and other forms of abuse that are found in the pages of the Bible. Political leaders, pastors like myself, evangelists, dictators, people looking to extort people have used many of the stories that we are going to be looking at to do just what Jonathan Edwards did and and what other leaders have done to manipulate guilt, shame, hurt, harm, abuse people. But these are not found in God. War, violence, greed, exploitation, oppression, racism, genocide, all forms of abuse, they're not found in God. They are rooted in our sin and are not in the hands of a merciful God. Next week, I'm going to pick up from here and I'm going to guide us to help us to see even more clearly how Jesus is above everything that is on any page of the Bible or any resource or any testimony of the church in times past. But for today, here is what we need to hear. Is it true? The answer is God being angry is not true. He is love all the time past, present, and future.
God is love. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. What have you believed, or are you still believing or currently believing, about God that doesn't line up with Jesus Christ? What is he saying to you? Do you believe that you can trust God? Like the prodigal son, do you feel safe allowing yourself to fall into the Father's arms? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about your trust in God? Jesus is what God looks like. Have you been influenced by a biblical metaphor that was literalized? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge His work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this is going to be helpful to you. I want to encourage you to join us on Zoom for either of the two lingerings today after this gathering or at 730 tonight. I want to encourage you to look at the notes, get into the scriptures, talk with one another, ask each other what God is revealing to you and help each other through this this week. Uh, we're not alone in this. We can, we can do this together. We can see God clearly together through Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you guys, um, be into those notes and let's continue this discussion throughout the week. So here's our benediction. As we go from here today, may we understand more clearly this week than ever before that any image that we have that does not line up with Jesus is wrong. May we see and know in our heart of hearts that God is love. And may we see and know that he always has been love. And may we never doubt it. And may, that, and may we know that he always will be love. 
for us. May we find ourselves in the loving arms of our Father in heaven this week. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much.